want to read from Matthew chapter 17 tonight. Matthew chapter 17. We're just going to jump right into the word of the Lord. When we are praying into tonight, what would the Lord want us to say? One of the things I felt come up in my spirit was that the Lord says, this is a time. This is a time to see things shift in terms of unresolved issues being met. And I want to share some things related to the battle that we, we are in as Christians, as believers, and how sometimes we go so far and we get a breakthrough to a certain limit, but there's a place that God wants to take his church right now of no limitations. And uh, if I were to give this message a title, I would call it New Devils, New Levels. Now, you might have heard New Levels, New Devils. But, you know, the best uh, form of <laughs> to respond when you're under attack, you know what? I mean, if you're in the, in, in the army and you're being, you know, attacked, what's, what's the best thing? Okay, so you get on the offense. Before you get attacked, you attack the enemy. And so, as I've said, some people have said, well, you know, when you go to new levels, there's new devils. And I'm like thinking about that. That's like, what are you trying to do? Discourage people from going to new levels? If you go to new levels, be prepared to get, you know. And I just thought about it and I said, you know what? It's the opposite. There is a heap of new devils out there. (laughs) And what I mean by is not that they're new, but they're just showing up. They're manifesting all over different ways. And we're in a time and a season where we need extraordinary power. You know, it says in Acts chapter 19, verse 11, that God performed extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. Think about that. It isn't that God did miracles. He did extraordinary miracles, unusual miracles. In other words, these are miracles at another level. And I really believe we're in a season where God is calling us to that. So let's just jump in in Matthew chapter 17, verse number 14. Um, This is an amazing story about a boy who is demonized, being completely healed. Verse 14 says this, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples... But they could not, what? Cure him. They could not heal him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, What up with that? Now, they came to him and they said, why couldn't we cast that demon out? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, verse 21 is not in all uh, English translations saying that perhaps it's uh, from a different manuscript, but verse 21, I'm going to read it. Anyway, it says this, However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. 
All right, let's just welcome the Lord to come because tonight I'm believing that we're going to see something extraordinary. Would you just lift your hands one more time and let's just say, Holy Spirit, come and have your way. Do what is normal for you to do. Have your way. Break the powers of darkness and liberate your people. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Okay. Awesome. Amen. Yeah. All right. So good to be here. We've been in Australia since the 24th of August and going back tomorrow to the United States. We live in Dallas, Texas. So it's been incredible. Everywhere we've gone in Australia, we're seeing God break out in power and glory. Miracles are happening. People are being saved. People are being delivered, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's been powerful. And so this is a new season. We're seeing it here in Australia. People are more hungry than ever, I believe. And we're seeing God do extraordinary things. But we're still at a place, I believe, guys, where God is saying there's another level that he wants to take us to. So let's not um, be comfortable. Let's not be content with where we are because God wants to take us to another level. There's some things that he wants to do. There's some strongholds that he, he wants to break. There's people that he wants to liberate that have been sitting in church for years and have not been healed or delivered or set free. And we are in a time where the Lord is saying enough is enough. Now is the time to show my power and my glory, and I will set people free. But he's looking for a people who will step into that place where they allow his glory and presence to be manifested in their lives. All right, so Jesus and his disciples in our text had just been up on the mountain. There's Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. What an incredible thing it was, right? There they are, and then all of a sudden, like, Jesus starts glowing, I mean, he's radiating, he's shining, and they're looking at him. And then the next thing you see is there's, there's actually Elijah and Moses show up. And then the voice of the Lord says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Remember, Peter is like, let's build a memorial, right? And now he's like, no, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, when you look at this particular occasion, obviously there, were, there was a reason for it. One, number one, it was really uh, just to prepare them for what was about to happen. Jesus was about to go to the cross, and they were being prepared for that. There was something happening. In fact, when you go to the previous chapter, chapter 16, the very last verse, he said, there's some of you guys here. He said, you will not taste death until you see the kingdom come in power. And then, boom, here they are, and the kingdom of God appears in their midst in power and glory. It's an amazing thing, but then what ends up taking place is reality sets in. They come down from the mountain to the valley, and while they come down, they are confronted with the reality of the other worlds, the other world. And what I'm referring to is a world of limitations, a world of lack a world of unresolved conflicts, unresolved issues, because Satan has virtually been left unchallenged. 
And so Jesus comes down and this father immediately shows up and says to him, Lord, have mercy. My son is tormented. He throws himself, he's thrown into the fire. He's thrown into the water. And I brought him to your disciples to heal him, but they weren't able to do anything. Lord, have mercy on my son. And Jesus replied and said, hey, why are you asking me? The same spirit that dwells in me is in my disciples. So if they weren't able to do it, what makes you think I can do it? Perhaps it's not the will of my father. Did you ever think about that? Maybe, maybe my father wants you to learn something from this. Maybe he has a purpose and a reason for your son to go through all of this. And uh, no, okay. How many know I'm preaching the first book of heresy right now? Okay. All right. So, so what did he say? Bring the boy to me. Come on now, look at this. Bring the boy to me, O faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Now, in the Greek, it literally is, the idea here is like, you have no concept of God. You have no real knowledge of God, and you have no focus. So the idea, guys, here is he's saying there has to be a focus. And it has to be on the Lord. This is the first thing I want us to understand tonight. When you step into revival, everything else literally falls off to the side. It is not important. When you step into revival, you become God conscious and you have a focus. Everything else is on the periphery. It's unimportant. It's insignificant. And so we have to stay focused on him. Faithless and perverse generation. You don't believe, you don't try. Now, the amazing thing is the parallel account of this story, which is found in Mark's gospel, chapter nine, is clear that the disciples had already been active in casting out demons. Mark chapter six, 12 and 13. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. But here they are now, after being successful for a season, after going to a certain level, and they are faced with the situation in which they find themselves, to their chagrin, powerless, impotent, unable to meet the need. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, faithless and perverse generation, bring the boy to me. And immediately Jesus rebukes the demon and it comes out of him. And the child is cured from that very hour. The child is healed from that very moment and is completely delivered and set free. Guys, I want you to see the power that Jesus walked in. There was nothing that was too difficult for him. He walked in such power. Any situation was resolvable. He was the one who brought solutions to all of the suffering of humankind. He went around doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil. For God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Everywhere he went. Now, when I was a kid, my mom got saved in what was known as the charismatic renewal. We're talking about the 70s, all right? Like the 70s. And so in the early 70s, something was happening, something very powerful. 
And it didn't just happen in, in North America. It was happening around the world. It happened here. It happened in New Zealand. It happened in the UK. It happened in other uh, places in the world. And what ended up taking place in the charismatic renewal, it was very different than, you know, the Pentecostal movement in that people from all denominations and backgrounds were coming and being healed and baptized with the Holy Spirit. There were Anglicans, there were Presbyterians, there were Baptists, there were, um, well, typically a lot of the people, interestingly, that were Pentecostal really didn't connect with it. And there were Catholics. So as a child, my mom would take me to these meetings. I would go there and I was like very young. We walk in, we would see priests, we would see nuns, we would see people from all different denominations, Lutheran, and they were there worshiping God all in the same room. And the presence and the anointing of, of Holy Spirit was so thick and miracles would happen. People would be healed. It was just like, it, it was almost like it was effortless. People were getting healed. So several times I had the privilege of seeing some of the most anointed people, at least at that time, you know, literally personally. When Benny Hinn was 19 years old, uh, he was in our city in Canada, from Toronto, Canada. He was starting up the miracles that were taking place through his ministry at that time. But probably one who is really my personal hero, who made the greatest impact upon my life was Catherine Kuhlman. I've been in three Catherine Kuhlman meetings, three of them. The first one, I got healed. As a young child, when I was in a Catherine Kuhlman meeting, no one prayed for me, no one laid hands on me, there wasn't a word of knowledge, but I was just in that atmosphere, in that environment, and what ended up happening is we left, and I noticed a few weeks later, maybe two or three weeks later, that this problem I had with breathing, it was an asthmatic condition, and allergies, I no longer had it. And I, I could pinpoint it to that time. And so, repeatedly, I kept hearing the stories about people that would go into a Catherine Kuhlman meeting. The thing that I remember the most, even though I was less than 10 years of age, was that people would be lined up outside. They would get there at 6 a.m. in the morning sometimes. It wouldn't start until the evening. And the tangible presence of the Lord was so strong, even outside, you could feel it. It was at another level, guys. Another level. It was something so powerful, so real, so tangible. And people were being impacted by this all over wherever she went and ministered. And one of the uh, stories that I heard actually years later, probably when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, was a friend of mine. I, I ran into him. We had gone to school together. And he, we ended up finding out that now both of us were saved, serving the Lord. And he told me a story about his mom and how she had gone to a Catherine Kuhlman meeting. She did not believe in healing. She thought Catherine Kuhlman was fake, but because they kept pressuring her, just go, what do you have to lose? She finally said, okay, I'll go, leave me alone. So they take her in. She had some disease, which it literally crippled her. She was in a wheelchair. They took her in, and back then, they would bring all the people who had wheelchairs, and there were like so many of them that would go to these meetings, and they would wheel them all up to the front, and they would sit in a section near the front. So the worship starts pretty old school, not like tonight, 
And, and, but the tangible presence of God is already there and it just gets stronger and stronger as, as they're worshiping. And then the next thing you know, Catherine Kuhlman comes walking out of, through some side door from her dressing room onto the platform and you just feel it shift by poof, just shift. And what ends up happening is my friend says at that moment when Catherine Kuhlman walked by his mom, never touched her, never looked at her, didn't do anything, walked by his mom who was in that wheelchair. She said like electricity went through her body. She felt it. And immediately she jumped up. She knew she was healed. She didn't even believe that Catherine Kuhlman was of God. I spoke with Richard Roberts, who's the son of the late Oral Roberts. And he told me when, I think it was in 1972, maybe 73, Catherine Kuhlman came to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And she did a miracle crusade. At that time, she was in her room doing what she always did. She'd pray and pray and pray. She lived a lifestyle of prayer. She was shut in with God. And then she ended up being asked to come out. And there were two custodians, like janitors, that were standing in the hallway who, as she was walking towards them, she, they actually began to mock her. They be, she was quirky. But they began to, to mock her. And as she walked towards them, both of these janitors fell out under the power. <laughs> Laying there, like, who's mopping up who now? And... And, and they laid her. Then they take her because the crowds, like they're, they're in the, you know, the, in the university, in the hallways, and they end up saying, we got to do something. We got to get you out there. So we don't want you to be thronged. So they take her through the kitchen. As she walks through the, crit, the kitchen, people who are working in the kitchen start falling out. As she walks through the kitchen. I mean, I'm telling you, there was something that this woman had on her life. When you would go to a Catherine Kuhlman meeting, she would come out, she would begin talking, you know, she would maybe worship a little bit, and then she would just begin to call out like words of knowledge. Somebody over here, you have this condition. Someone here, you have this condition. She would begin to just call out things and these people would be healed miraculously, but many other people would be healed as well. Incredible stories of healing. I encourage you to look it up. But what I realized as I have studied her life and, and as I was impacted by that is there is something that the Bible really uh, speaks about, which is more of an impartation that comes just from being around people like that. The Bible is clear. Like, remember, King Saul gets around the prophets and then he starts prophesying. So there's something that happens when we get around people like that. And I've seen that happen throughout our ministry on several times. It happened related to healing. There was a, uh, a man who's older than me now, quite a few years older than me, 
who actually served as an usher in Catherine Kuhlman's meetings. At the time, he was pastoring a church in Canada that had about 40 people out in the country. And just by being in that atmosphere, serving as an usher, never was prayed for, never was anointed. I don't even know if he ever met Catherine Kuhlman. He went back to his church and miracles started breaking out in his church to the point that people were lining up to get into the building in the early hours of the morning in this country church. Amazing things began to happen and eventually he would fill up he would fill up literally stadiums as a result not even being prayed for the only thing he says is i went there i was in that atmosphere i caught something and it was transferred to him and he stepped into a level of anointing and power that he had never been experienced before And I believe that the real hallmark of revival is when it becomes contagious and it equips and it empowers people to go out. And, you know, as William Booth said many years ago, I am not waiting for a revival. I am a revival. We become that revival ourselves and we take it out and we impact people all over the world. So the disciples... They're like, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Verse 20, because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith, listen to this, as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, contrary to what has been stated, I'm going to, just share something a little bit different in regards to what I believe this means, faith as a mustard seed. In the New Testament language, in the Greek, it does not say faith the size of a mustard seed. It literally says faith as a mustard seed. It's the Greek word hois, and it literally means like, the same as, even as, in the same manner as. In other words, it's not about the size of our mustard, uh, the mustard seed. It's about the vitality of the mustard seed. You see, Smith Wigglesworth called it ever-increasing faith. Ever-increasing faith. So, so watch this. Matthew 13, 31. Jesus tells the parable of the mustard seed. And he equates the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in the branches. Listen, if you read Matthew 13, if you read Mark uh, account as well, you will see that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God expanding throughout the earth. The kingdom of God is meant to expand and to fill the earth. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Now, it's all about seeing the, actually the NLT says the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. 
Now, if people can say, well, the glory of the Lord is everywhere. Yeah, yeah, but he said with an awareness, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord so that everyone recognizes it. I don't care who you were. No, if you were an atheist, if you were a Satanist, if you were a Buddhist, if you're a Hindu, if you, whatever religion you come from, when you would go into a Catherine Kuhlman meeting, you could not deny the tangible reality of God's presence there. Anyone that walked in said, whoa. So what is he saying? Let me read to you Matthew 17, verse 20 in the Amplified. You know, Jesus, this is how he talked, right? Amplified. Okay. For truly I say to you, if you have faith that is living and growing like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to yonder place, and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. So if you have faith like a mustard seed that is living and growing, living and growing, living and growing. You see, what happened to Jesus before he walked down from the mountain is he was in the presence of his father. But let me say to you that Jesus lived in a place of constant communion with his father. You know, he didn't have to say to them, look, hey, I'm glad that you brought this child to me, but right now I'm just not ready. I mean, I need to go and fast and pray for three days. Then let's set up an appointment and we'll pray for him. Or, hey, let me go at least and pray for three hours. No, he said, bring the boy to me, faithless and perverse generation. Boom, he spoke the word and it came out. No contest, no resistance. The devil was overpowered because of the authority that Jesus walked in. Jesus lived in a state of unceasing interaction and fellowship with his father. Do you know that Jesus did not die of crucifixion? Do you know that? Jesus was crucified But when they came to him and saw him on the cross, they were amazed that he was already dead. He was already dead. So what happened? So they say, okay, just to make sure that he's dead, let's actually put a spear in him, in his side. And from his side flowed water and blood. He had died already. He was dead. And medically speaking, something had happened. I've I've read different theories. I've talked to different friends of mine who are doctors, medical doctors. And I've heard different theories. But one of the theories is that the pericardium sac around the heart, which holds the body fluids, can rupture under times of extreme stress and anxiety. And when that happens the body fluids and the blood mix. In the natural, no one can withstand that. You would die quickly. But remember when Jesus was in the garden and he was praying and it was like he was sweating as great drops of blood. And it says in one of the accounts, I believe it's Mark's account, that angels came and ministered to him. 
My hypothesis is this, that if they did not come and minister to him at that point, he would have died in the garden. But he couldn't die in the garden. He had to die on the cross. But the thing that broke Jesus' heart and caused this great stress upon him was not that he was thinking, well, I have to go to the cross. No, remember he cried out, I believe it's in John chapter 12, he said, you know, the hour has come for the son to go to the cross, to be crucified. And he said, what do I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, 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 no. Father, glorify your name. Here I am. I present myself as a living sacrifice. I'm not running from that. I'm not stressed out over going to the cross. But the thing that literally caused Jesus such pain was knowing that he would be separated from his father. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became a sin offering. He took your sin and my sin upon him. At that point, for the first time in his life, his communion and intimacy with the Father had been disrupted. When you read the Amplified Bible in Hebrews chapter 5, listen to this. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up definite, special petitions for that which he not only wanted but needed, and supplications with strong crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Listen, why was he heard? This is what he says. And he was heard because of his reverence toward God, his godly fear, his piety. The word that is used here in the Greek is not the typical word translated fear. It's a different Greek word. And it doesn't speak of, like, I'm afraid, and therefore, I don't want to do this. Like, I can't handle this. It's too much for me. And and a person just falls apart. That's not the word. You'll see that it's translated fear in some English Bibles. In others, it's rendered reverence. And still, in others, piety. But the word literally speaks of walking circumspectly. And the Amplified Bible says this, he shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. He shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. The thing that broke Jesus' heart, the thing that was beyond what he could handle was the idea that he would be separated from the bright presence of his father. That for a moment of time, when the sins of the world were placed upon him, the father literally no longer was there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was separated from the presence of his father. At that point, his heart ruptured. At that point, something took place. And because of that, he died, not of crucifixion, but of a broken heart because of the anguish and the pain of being separated from his father. So my concern about us, church, is how do we feel about the communion 
of God, the intimacy of the Father. How do we live? Can we, more than anything else, say, Lord, nothing else matters. Your presence, your glory, being connected to you, intimacy with you is more important than anything else. God, take the whole world, but give me Jesus. I want Jesus. I want your presence. I want your anointing more than anything else. See, some people... Seek the Lord for position, power, prestige, even for provision. But Jesus sought his father for his presence. He sought the father for his presence. See, Jesus lived a fasted lifestyle. He walked in the glory realm. He abided in a place where he didn't know what it was like to not experience the presence of God. He didn't just show up on Sunday or Thursday night at revival service and go, man, it was good to be back in the presence of the Lord. He didn't know what it was like to not be in the presence of Father. We live in that state perpetually. Nothing disrupts that more than anything. Jesus shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. In other words, I don't want to do anything that would grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do anything that would cause the Holy Spirit to be offended. If you had seven days left to live, what would you say to the people that are nearest and dearest to you? Jesus says something very different. In John chapter 15, he's talking about, you know, he's leaving, he's going to go to the cross. And, you know, he'd already said to them, hey, I serve like I serve, John 13, John 14, Holy Spirit is going to come. Then in John 15, it seems that he digresses. But in actuality, he isn't. He begins to talk to them about a vine and branches. And he says, my father is the vine dresser. You all are the branches. All y'all. That's Texan, if you don't know that. Okay? That's where we live in Texas. So all y'all are the branches. If the branch stays connected or abides or remains in the vine, it's a Greek word, meno, It will bear much fruit. It will bear much fruit. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he chops it down, he throws it into the fire. But what has happened in many places today is we have thought erroneously that our goal as Christians should be bearing fruit. In other words, good deeds, being a good person, You know, doing all of those things. And absolutely, God wants us to do that, to manifest those good works and and all of those things. But ultimately, what Jesus said is this. I'm going to leave. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to do is bear fruit wherever you go. Every good tree bears good fruit. Right? And so Martin Luther said, it's not the fruit that makes the tree good, but it's the tree that makes the fruit good. In other words, we come to a place 
where we recognize that if we are a good tree, we will bear good fruit. But how do we do that? We stay connected to the source of life. If the branches are connected to the vine, the life that is in the vine will flow into the branches and the branches effortlessly will bear good fruit and much fruit effortlessly. And we have focused on bearing fruit like it's my responsibility to bear fruit. I've got to change. I've got to be better. I've got to, you know, like we make New Year's resolutions. And, and you know, by the end of, of January, like people that signed up to go to the gym, it's like 80% of people have quit. <laughs> so what, what happens is we just don't do well. But Jesus is saying, look. This is not about conforming to a certain lifestyle. This is not about behavioral modification. This is about transformation from the inside out. So when it says that Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, the Greek word literally speaks of something that happens on the inside, but yet it manifested literally on his physical countenance, but it's something that happens on the inside, and yet we are told, watch this, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, so all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. That's what the New Living says. Another one says, as we are literally transfigured from one degree of glory to another, it's the same Greek word. And what it's saying is unlike Moses, who experienced it on his face, that the glory of the new covenant starts on the inside of us, and it transfigures us on the inside, and it changes us because the life that is in the vine flows into the branch. So bearing fruit is a promise. Abiding is a process. We focus on bearing fruit, but bearing fruit is a promise. If you will abide, God will provide. If you will stay connected to him, all things pertaining to life and goodliness, you will change from the inside out and people will see the glory of God even in your eyes. You can tell when people need delivered. Look in their eyes. Darkness. But when people are full of the light of the glory, full of the light, the kingdom of God is within you. It brings transformation from the inside out. It changes us from the inside out. And this power is what he's given to us. So we are to be like a grain of mustard seed that Though it's small, it continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And as we continue to grow, as we continue to change, then what ends up happening is we go from one level of glory to the next. The key in all of this is if we're going to see... Revival becomes sustainable. We're going to have to learn how to go from one level of glory to the next. We have been part of several revivals. 
all in America. They've broken out. They've impacted hundreds of people, even into outside of the church, maybe even more than hundreds. And it's continued for a year, sometimes two years, but then boom, it stopped. In every case, what it was is something happened in terms of the people getting their eyes off of Jesus and putting their eyes on what was going on. You know, one of the the greatest things the enemy does is he creates something that Paul calls in 1 Timothy 6, evil suspicions. And I've seen it happen time after time. People, all of a sudden, they start getting this, hmm, I wonder what they're doing, hmm, you know, and they just start thinking negatively, terribly, critically about other people. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. We were ministering in Seattle and been there. There was a move of God's spirit. People were coming and it was powerful, but I felt like something was wrong in my spirit. And I was praying and I said, Lord, what's wrong? I feel there's more. I feel you want to do something even greater. Sunday morning, I'm getting ready to speak in the second service in this church, and I see this woman walk in. And as soon as she walks in, I hear the Holy Spirit say, one accord in one place. One accord in one place. And she ended up coming over, and she talked to me briefly and spoke with the pastor. And I said to her, ma'am, I said, I I just got to share this. It's so strong. I don't know what it means, but I'm just going to be faithful. I said, I hear the Lord say one accord in one place. She looked at me. She was not happy. She went, sat down in another section during worship. She didn't look very happy at all. She looked miserable. And then after the service, she came up to me and she said, young man. She said, you know, when you told me that, she said, I was angry at you. And I said, okay. <laughs> like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just the delivery boy. I'm like the Uber driver, you know what I'm saying? And, and so what ends up happening is she says, do you know who I am? Did he tell you? She points to the pastor. And I said, no one told me anything, not even God. Like, I don't know who you are. All I know is one accord in one place. And she said, well, that man right there, that's my husband, the pastor. And I said, okay. And she said, about six months ago, we got in an argument And he was wanting to do things in the church that I didn't agree with. So I took about half of the women of the church and went down the street and started my own church. And you had the audacity to tell me one accord in one place. Now I'm like, okay, now I know why. There's something being hindered. She looked at me and she said, that was God. 
I said, uh-huh. And she said, I got to repent. And I said, uh-huh. And she said, thank you for sharing that. And she got reconciled with her husband. They still live together. And she came back, one accord, in one place. Come on. Now, I know in Australia, you guys would never do anything like that. Like, you don't ignore one another. You know, it's like, not, especially people you live with, right? Silent treatment or anything like that. You don't do that. But guys, we are living in a time where we have to be so careful. So careful. What God is doing here at NUMA and is doing and has done, we have to guard this thing. We have to watch over it. We have to protect it. We have to steward it wisely. And what God's doing in your life, you have to steward that. And you, you have to deal with any distractions. Anything that is pulling you away from Jesus. Like, I know we all have things to do in life. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying go up to a mountain and live there. And I'm just saying we have to stay focused on our walk with God. We have to keep short accounts with one another. We have to make sure that, that we're in right relationship with the Lord. And the Lord showed me something that I want to just share with you. It's found in the book of Malachi. I want you to see this. It's so powerful. In Malachi chapter 2, the children of Israel, they had received a promise. God restored them to their homeland after the Babylonian captivity. But then in chapter 2, verse 17, they were upset with the Lord. They felt that God hadn't made good on his promises, that God had failed them. So in Malachi 2, verse 17, the prophet says, you've wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And where is the God of justice? Where's God? Why isn't he answering us? Why isn't he responding? Why does it seem that the heavens are brass and nothing is happening in my life when I pray? Well, remember, there's no chapters or verses when the Bible was written. So the next verse, technically, the next line is chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Another translation says, look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to the temple. Now, it's interesting. What was happening was they had their eyes on their circumstances, on their problems. They couldn't see God. They, they felt that God wasn't listening to them. He wasn't responding. And the prophet responds by saying in the first word in verse number one of chapter three is behold or look. Some translations say low. Low is an old English term that literally means look. Pay attention. Read Shakespeare. 
And what he's saying is this. He's saying, guys, you had your, your eyes fixated on everyone else, on everything else. Your eyes aren't on me. So the first thing he says is, behold, look. And it literally implies in the Hebrew, look at me. Stop looking at everything else. Look at me. Seek my face. And suddenly, the Lord whom you are seeking will appear in his temple. The reason why many of us are not getting the breakthrough and not experiencing what we're wanting for and we need is because we don't have our eyes on Jesus. We've got our eyes on everything else. And the Lord would say to you, get your eyes off of everything else. Put your eyes on Jesus. And suddenly, the Lord whom you're seeking will appear. He'll come to you. He'll come in glory. He'll come in power. He'll come and deal with deep iniquitous stuff. He'll come and he'll deal with all the powers of the enemy as we go from one level of glory to the next. We're in a time and a season where God is calling us to seek his face like never before. Remember the book of James chapter 4? Verse 8, it says, draw near to God, right? And he will draw near to you. You know, when you really look at this, it's a very powerful term. Because in verse 7, I believe it is, the verse before, he says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you, right? And it literally means, okay, you ready? If you go into the Aramaic, this is what it means. Sorry, I'm just getting a little technical. He says this. He says, submit yourself to God, like surrender your life, okay? And resist the enemy. Fight. Stand your ground. And he will flee in anguish. Verse 8. In the Aramaic, Draw near to God, literally in Aramaic is move closer and closer to God. Move closer and closer to God. In Aramaic, and he will be touching you. If we stop growing, if we stop, stop seeking, if we stop moving from glory to glory, we will never experience all that God wants to do. We will become just another movement, revival, that lasted for a year or however long And the enemy is a fire quencher. The enemy will do whatever he can to stop. But guys, I'm telling you, there's a deeper place of hunger and pursuit. And I know there's many people here that you are doing that. You're loving God. But can I just encourage you to go even deeper still? Can I just encourage you to go to that place where you encounter God afresh? 
where you move to that deeper place, where you go from glory to glory. Get your eyes back on Jesus, Him alone. Seek His face. Turn your eyes away. You know, I remember, guys, back in the old school days, Catherine Coleman, turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? Look full in His glorious face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Come on, let's stand together and sing that. Come on. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look forth in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Come on, let's sing that to the Lord from our spirits tonight. Come on, let's cry out to Him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. One more time, come on. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Come on. Look We owe the world an encounter with God. The darkness is getting darker, but we must arise and shine. New devils require new levels. New devils require new levels. New levels. That we will be able to cast it out. That we will be able to see, see that healing. We will see that breakthrough. People will no longer be bound. God wants to use us, saints. The next move of God, hear me, please, is not going to be led by personalities or even greatly anointed men alone, men and women. The next move of God is all about seeing his body mobilized. It's about God's body going out in the power and the anointing and making a difference, doing what we were called to do, manifesting Jesus, healing the sick, casting demons out praying with power and seeing deliverance and healing. We are in a season where God is looking for those who will seek Him for His presence and person, not just for His promises and provision. Seek Him for His presence and person, not just His promises and provision. I'll seek his hand, but seek his face. I'll seek the gifts, but seek the giver. Pursue him. 
pursue him in the book of Amos he says seek me O Israel and live seek me and live seek me and live seek me and live everything you have need of is found as you seek him submit yourself to God resist the devil and he will flee in anguish he will flee defeated when the demon came out of that boy one of the accounts in the synoptic gospel said that there was a screech a scream and it was like a scream of anguish that the enemy's time had come his time has come there's deep things that are holding people down there's deep things that are tying people up Satan has come to take people hostage we don't negotiate with terrorists come on SEAL team go in there come on now come on we are all called to make a difference we're all called